0: So last night we had Brother Glenn Colley and Brother Kerry Duke bring us the lessons from 1 Kings. Today uh, we're blessed to have Doug Dingley and his wife Karen has accompanied him. Uh, Doug Dingley bring us the lesson from 1 Kings 18 starting around verse 41 and, and, uh, but don't put a marker there for too long because I'm sure Doug is going to present from various ways and if you know Doug and you see in your Bibles a wherefore He says, you got to look and see what it's there for, the wherefore. In other words, keep looking. Keep digging for that dark russet potato chip. It's in the bag somewhere. Following Doug this morning at 1030, Kevin Rose will present the lesson. He's here with his mom, Sandra, or Sandy, I guess is what we used to call you. Sandra, so we're certainly glad both of you are here as well. We'll do a quick introduction. Now, Doug is from New England, uh, Maine originally. Yes, and then he preached for a time in uh, Conway, New Hampshire, and then out in uh, Michigan? South Dakota. South Dakota, yeah, and it was one of those cold spots here, South Dakota, currently in Oklahoma. Um, Doug has written a couple of books to see him about those and uh, has had the opportunity to speak around the nation. So, Doug Dingley, we are certainly glad, we're certainly glad that you are here with us today. Um, Bob did Bob Aspie oh did you have anybody picked for prayer I guess that's me then well then let's go to God in prayer and then we'll hear from Doug Dingley Almighty Heavenly Father we are so thankful to yet again be able to gather together and enjoy each other's fellowship and company and to hear from your word we pray, Father, you give these men confidence and, and courage to uh, not neglect from sharing with us the whole truth that you intend for us. Help us to grow thereby, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Good morning. What an awesome day to be in God's house, to enjoy all this good fellowship and uh, all of this feast of the Word of God. I want to reiterate uh, what the, the two wonderful brothers said last night about what a privilege and, and opportunity and blessing that it is to be here. i um, so grateful to the elders of this congregation for all of the hard work, and I know that um, this congregation does a lot of different things, is involved in a lot of different ministries, and so i um, grateful not only to the elders, but to those who are feet on the ground getting the job done, to those ladies that have prepared so much food for the day, uh, for the entire congregation, and for the work that you do, we are very grateful. And I personally am grateful for the other speakers. I learned some things last night that I, I did not know, had not connected the dots on, and so I'm grateful for your insights, gentlemen. And uh, I'm going to ask this morning that you might take out your Bibles and turn to the text. The text will be 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 41 through chapter 19 and verse 21. It's so important to open those Bibles and to make sure that you check every word, not only that I say, but that all of the speakers say, because we are mere men. Sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we misquote, but God never makes a mistake. So open those Bibles up. Stay with us this morning. Uh, I will be alluding to several other texts during the course of this lesson, so if you are a note-taker, that is good if you want to go back and check some of these things out. My topic for this morning is, what are you doing here, Elijah? And, and I kind of put it in, in those terms because that's the way in my mind I, I would think that God may have said that. We are going to pick up in chapter 18, actually, at verse 40. As you know, at this point, there has been the great confrontation on the mountain. We know that um, God has spoken by fire, as it were, and that the false prophets of Baal that ate at Jezebel's table were summarily defeated, as we discussed last night uh, in the wonderful lessons presented. Uh, what a What a victory that was and how Elijah gave them all kinds of opportunity, letting them go first, having the entire day to prove their point, which they could not do. And so they are completely defeated by the God of heaven. And we pick up in chapter 18 and verse 40, right at the conclusion of that confrontation. And Elijah said to them, that is to the people who have now turned to God, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, verse 41, Go up, eat and drink, for is the sound, there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. It's obvious at this point that King Ahab had gone down the mountain, down to the, the valley there, down to the brook Kishon and he witnessed the children of Israel slaughtering as it were all of his and his wife's several hundred prophets that were there it was a it was a slaughter if you will which he had been totally powerless to stop i mean god had had taken care of this and even king ahab himself was powerless to stop this and has it ever occurred to you that Now, Scripture doesn't say this, and I don't mean to add to Scripture, but I want you there. I want to try to put you there. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe at this point in time, Ahab wondered if he would be next to be slaughtered? I mean, he's been powerless to stop the slaughter of all these prophets. Elijah is in complete control. He had been an enemy of Elijah. He'd been seeking Elijah's life, and now the tables have kind of turned, and here he is. He's the one that's alone. He's the one that's deserted. He is the one it is no longer in control of those around him. It had originally been Elijah that had gone up against the king, all of these false prophets, the entire nation. Now God has totally reversed that. And it's Ahab who's standing there. If it's me personally, I'm thinking, (laughs) after seeing all this this slaughter of these prophets, it's like, you know, lumping yourself. Am I next? Because Elijah's got this. Because God has got this and Elijah belongs to God. So, either what Ahab had seen that day or the circumstances he he now found himself in of being relatively isolated or powerless. You know, it seems as we read through this story that that had at the very least humbled him, if not truly frightened him maybe even caused a little bit of reconciliation between him and Elijah, and I don't know which, but as you read this, all of a sudden Ahab seems to be a little more humble than he was, wouldn't you be? (laughs) I'd be a little scared if I I were him. But, you know, if I were Elijah, and I were thinking about this, what an incredibly powerful day this would be. What, What an incredible day this would have been. After long years, Elijah by the power of God has finally succeeded in turning the people back to God, in turning the nation back to God, done away with with all of these false prophets. What a preacher lift that must have been. Think about it. Let me ask you a question. If during this lectureship we were to see a baptism, wouldn't that be awesome? We see somebody turn to God? What if we saw five baptisms? Would that be incredible? Would would that be just, wow! Well, when I think about that, I can't help but think about Peter on the day of Pentecost. Can you imagine what it would be like? One lesson, 3,000 conversions. I I cannot get my mind around that. Some of you seasoned preachers even. 3,000 people baptized. And yet, What would we do if we could turn the entire town of Tilton to God? Wouldn't that be awesome? If every denominational preacher in every denominational church in the entire town of Tilton became a church of Christ, a faithful church of Christ, wouldn't that be awesome? Well, Elijah does far above and beyond that, the whole nation. He said, gather the whole nation. He's got them all turned around. I'm telling you as a preacher, this would be like, this would be like, I I don't even know what it would be like because it would be like nothing else I've ever seen. He's got them all turned, and it's exciting, and so, not rocking the boat, he, he now encourages Ahab to go back up the mountain and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the abundance of rain, verse 41. there There's been no rain, as we know, for three and a half years, because we know that from James five seventeen. But Elijah has faith in the promise of God to bring the rain, 1 Kings 18 and verse 1. And so with the nation having now repented, verse 39, and the prophets who caused the curse having now been executed, verse 40, the drought can be ended. We pick up in verse 42 where we left off, the latter part. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, then he bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said there is nothing and seven times he said go again. The area where this is this confrontation and this whole series of events is is believed to have taken place by a number of folks there's a there's a place where, right up on top of the mountain, you've got this plateau, but you can't quite see everything. You've got to go up just a little ways further. There's a little rise there above that place where the ocean can be seen with only just a, just a quick few minutes' climb to the top of this little summit. It's sort of like what I, would, what I would illustrate it as is Mount Washington. You know how when you go up Mount Washington and you got the parking lot? You know right after you park in a parking lot there in that, that flat spot that you have to climb those steps up to the summit, the very summit, to get to the very top? Just a little bit of a climb, I mean, what, a few stairs, right? Take you a minute and a half or something? In my mind, I picture it like that. There's this plateau plateau where the confrontation took place, and and Elijah is is there. He's gone back up, and, and he's praying, and he tells his servant, he says, go up. Just just go up to the top of that little summit. It's, it's an area like that. But as I think about this, too, I notice the fact that seven times he did this. Now, we know seven times, good Bible number. We kind of read it over. it. But, but think about Put yourself there. Seven times. How often do we pray for something and give up after two or three times? Right? We get frustrated. We get, you know, God's not going to answer. Or life goes on, and, and we stop. Now, if you're praying in front of somebody, you've just proven God is God, and you pray the first time, and you, you're there, and, and you pray and absolutely nothing happens. Say, hmm, maybe I better try this again. <laughs> so we pray a second time, and, and there's these people around, and we've proven how God is God, and, and God's gonna answer us. Time number two, not a thing. Like trying to light damp firewood, right? Just nothing happens, right? And a third time. He says, Go check again and a fourth time and a fifth time. After a while, sometimes we get frustrated. Elijah prayed seven times. And every time he said, You go up there and check. Guy comes down and say, nothing happened. And he said, okay, and he prayed again. He go up back. This goes on seven times times. And I love, don't miss Elijah's faith here. He doesn't stop trusting God just because God doesn't answer his prayer. He doesn't. God said he'd bring rain. Elijah knows he's going to bring rain, so he just keeps on. He's persistent in prayer. Verse 44. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of this little tiny cloud, the servant says. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. What a a faith. There's a little cloud the size of me. I don't know how big your hand is, and I know it's not literal, but there's a little tiny puff of smoke. And so Elijah says, You tell Ahab, get down the mountain while he still can, because it's going to rain. Notice here the newfound amiability once again between Elijah and King Ahab. When it when it rains heavily in that area, the Kishon Brook becomes a raging torrential river because it collects the water running down out of the mountains like, like here in New England, right? Water runs down and it collects and we know that it becomes almost like an impassable swamp from Judges chapter 5 in verse 21 in, in this area at that time. So Elijah not rocking a boat with Ahab says, hey, tell him to get down there and he, and he tries to save Ahab from this muddy swampy land with his chariot. And so we move on in our reading. Now it happened, verse 45, in the meantime, sky became black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Although Samaria was the capital, Ahab and Jezebel had this uh, summer palace in Jezreel. We learn this from 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 1. Sort of like the same idea you might think of today. Some people have like a summer home near the ocean, that type of thing. Well, they had this summer palace that was a little closer to the, um, to the sea there. And Jezreel was somewhere between, from what I understand, about 14 to 17 miles from where this confrontation was believed to have occurred. And I want you to think about that. It says in our reading that the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. It had to have. I want you to think about what Elijah had been through that day. All day long he'd given the other guys a chance to prove their point, right? So the day has, has passed, and around noontime he has chided them, as, as we had talked about godly sarcasm last night, or, or or biblical sarcasm. So all day long he'd had this duel with, with them going on, this, this confrontation. And... <clears throat> And then the, the false prophets had been captured and they'd brought them down the valley to the Brook Kishon to slaughter them. And then he's gone back up the mountain, right? You know, hike up and down a mountain in this all-day confrontation. He's been really, really physically exhausted, I'm sure. I mean, any of us would have been. But then, but then on top of that, he, he runs this 14 to 17-mile marathon faster then the king's horses and chariot, the king didn't have like these old, old horses that couldn't run. He would have the cream of the crop animals that could run the fastest in the nation. I mean, these horses that carried the king's chariot were top of the line. I mean, Air Force One on the ground, okay? Right? The best of the best. And on top of this, up and down the mountain in the all-day confrontation, Elijah runs ahead of him. Well, that was just simply and straight out. From God, The hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. There's no way he could have done any of this without God's help and without God empowering him to do so. And so he was endowed with this, this supernatural power from God to outrun the king's horses and chariot there. Much the same as you might recall Samson picked up, picked up the gates of Hebron or Hebron, however you want to pronounce it, in Judges 16.3 and, and carried them off. The same, same sort of thing going on. And what this was was an additional sign to the people that, hey, God is God, and Elijah is God's man. Just more proof, more proof going on. And and as I think about this, and again, I want to go back to this because it it has so much to do with our our application. I, I can't begin to imagine how elated, excited, adrenaline rush, Elijah, how would you like to outrun horses for 17 miles? I mean, if you had the power to do that, wouldn't that be cool, right? After all you've been through all day and you've seen this great defeat and the nation has turned and the king has been humbled and everything's just awesome, everything is just great, everything is just wonderful and, and as you're heading into Jezreel thinking, now we got it. Man, we got it. Don't get ahead of me like Paul Harvey with the rest of the story. Stay with me here where we're at in the verses, okay? You're thinking, this is great, and, and certainly now, even Jezebel's got to turn. Ahab has turned. The nation has turned. Man, this is just the most, uh, God, I can't even get my mind around how awesome this is. And so he runs and he gets there. Man, now I can get even Jezebel. She's going to be compelled to turn. The nation's turned. The prophets are dead. Her husband's turned. This is great. Not. Not. <laughs> As brother James Burton Kaufman said, whatever the hopes of Elijah might have been as he thus conducted Ahab into Jezreel, his euphoria was fated to encounter a shocking reversal. You want to talk about going from the top of the mountain right into the abyss in about two seconds flat? I mean, the physical mountain he went up and down was not the only mountain he went up and down that day. Coming from that euphoria to what we read next, He is pushed off the cliff. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She said, May I be... To death like those prophets were and even worse, if I don't take your life the next 24 hours. Why don't you think about Jezebel? And I appreciated the, the depiction of her last night when it was talked about you know, the devil and her husband, because that's that's just who she was. Think about her for a minute, despite even the impassioned eyewitness account of her own husband of the day's events she still remained absolutely unmoved, unimpressed, and unwilling to repent as any rational, reasonable person would have been. Listen, the nation turned, right? Even those people in the nation, they turned. Not old Jezebel. Everything was right there. It was undeniable. Her husband, the prophets ain't coming to her table again. They're gone. She knew they were gone. She knew what had happened. But despite all of that, despite him out the horses, despite Ahab coming in and saying, you should have seen what I saw. I'm going to take him down. I'm going to kill him. I'm not accepting all this God stuff. I don't care. And, and as we, as we consider that, I want us to to remember for our own application, some people, some people have so completely given themselves over, even in our world today, to the total denial and rejection of Almighty God that there is no argument on this planet you can make that's going to change their minds. You, you gotta understand that. I have beaten myself up more when I have talked to people about the Lord, and they refuse to they refuse to budge. you, you all done that, right? You tried to study with somebody, and it does not make any difference. if God himself could could, you know take Mount Washington up and and take it down and put it on the coast by Portland headlight and and they still wouldn't pay any attention. They're just not gonna listen, it's always been that way. We gotta understand that. Our job, don't throw anything at me till I get done. Let me finish the statement. Our job is not to convert anybody. It's not. Our job is to get people into the Word of God and let Him convert them. God adds the increase. And, but, but in that process, you're going to encounter people like her. But, but you got to understand, don't beat yourself up. When you do all you can do, when you do everything you can do like Elijah did, and it's so plain, and it's black and white, or depending on your text, red and white, right? And, and, and you've laid it all out there, and you've got it done. You cannot go home and let Satan beat you up that you didn't do enough. If you've done all you can, that's all you can do. What did Jesus say? This woman will be remembered because she hath done what she could. But Satan wants to beat you up and have you just stop trying to evangelize if you're not successful. But listen, there's people out there like Jezebel. It don't matter what you say. It don't matter what you do. They're just not going to change. And you know what? It's always been that way. It has always been that way. For example, let me just read these to you real quick. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, The hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes, they have closed. Did you get that? They, you, you didn't do it, they did it. They have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Jesus will heal anybody, right? He'll turn them to God, right? But listen, if they've closed their own eyes, and their own ears, and their own hearts, you can't get through to them with the message, but that's not on you. As I read the parable of the solar, you know, the four different, kind, the four different events, right? Four different outcomes. Luke eight eleven, the seed is the same in all of them, the word of God. The seed don't change. It's not the seed that's the issue here. The problem is the soil it's going into. Right? That's the only difference between 1, 2, 3, and 4 in that parable. Moving on. Apostle Paul also dealt with it. He said in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul dealt with it. Jesus dealt with it. Elijah's dealing with somebody like that. You remember what Paul said about such folks in Acts thirteen forty-six. Here's one for you, always to remember. He said, "Those who reject the clear and obvious truth of God." judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That's one we've got to remember. People say, you can't judge me. I, I'm not out to judge anybody. But, but, but when you reject the word of God, you judge yourself. Right? That's what scripture says. We'll go with that. We'll always go with that. Listen, this same denial and rejection of God's absolute truth that, that results in a reprobate mind like Jezebel had is the same thing we see today resulting in the reprobate mind and the lifestyle in those supporting and promoting the homosexual agenda. It doesn't matter how many times you go to the scripture, it doesn't matter how many scriptures you quote, it doesn't matter people are still out there blaming God. Well, God caused me to be born this way. No, God didn't. You made a choice. Don't try to blame God for your bad choices. But, but no matter how many times you, as, as was alluded to last night, you go through Romans 1 and, and all of this, it, they're, just, they're like Jezebel. They've just, they know what they're going to believe and that's it. And anything contradicts it, they ain't taken. it. But we move on. Verse, verse 3 of, of chapter 19. When Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. I want us to understand here, <clears throat> while the phrase ran for his life does not occur with any other Bible character. That phrase, ran for his life, also does not occur in every translation of this text. Um, Some believe that to take this verse, he ran for his life, as simply, only, and exclusively... The idea that he was just in total fear of this woman might not be fair, both in the context and according to other scriptures. Some take this ran for his life to mean just just overwhelmed with fear of this woman. And I don't believe that's necessarily all that's encompassed here. I don't know that it's even primarily the idea. And I want to show you why, and I want you to think about this. Some of the newer translations would want to seek to indicate to us that he was so afraid, so terrified... That he ran for his life in just simply fear, but there are other versions. For example, the Old King James, the American Standard version, as well as the Revised Standard version, which don't say they, which do not say he ran for his life. They translate that word went for his life. There's a difference between running for your life, the connotation at least, and went for your life. If you go for something or run for something, there's a difference. Okay. I'm too old and overweight to run for anything, even office. Okay? But I'll tell you what, I'll go for a good lobster roll while I'm in New England, right? I'll, 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 I, he went for that. Yes, he did, but he didn't run for it. There's a difference in the, in the context. And so I'd like to suggest for your consideration that he went for his life or ran for his life, whichever way you, you choose to, 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 to translate that Hebrew word. As much out of an overwhelming discouragement as fear. And I believe the Bible, and I'm going to show you why, and you don't have to accept that, but think about it. I believe that he went for his life or ran for his life as much out of an overwhelming discouragement as because he was just simply deathly afraid of Jezebel. And, And I'm going to give you four reasons to consider why. Think about this. Number one, first off, Elijah was no coward. I mean, Elijah had just faced down all of Israel, 1 Kings 18 and verse 19. Hundreds of false prophets and a king who was out to take his life. Now, does that sound like a coward to you? Not on your life. Okay? And God being with him, as he had so impressively proven, Elijah really didn't have anything to fear from this woman. Not really. God had pretty well shown him that God was in control, hadn't he? They really didn't, even though she was powerful. And and Elijah had to have known I mean, put yourself in his shoes, that her power to carry out this threat was at least a little diminished from what it had been. I mean, she's minus several hundred false prophets at this point, right? Her husband's calmed down. So she's, her power is not totally taken away by any stretch. We know that from the rest of her life story. But, but her power to carry out this threat is at least temporarily diminished. Is that fair? Based on what has happened here. Number two. Another reason that that I don't believe it was just abject fear. Um, We know what God thinks of cowards from Revelation 21 and verse 8, right? Yet on the Mount of Transfiguration, as was, again, talked to us about last night, when Jesus was there, who was there? Moses and Elijah. Elijah was a coward through and through. I don't believe he'd have been in that company because God doesn't approve of cowardice. Number three, if it was only fear alone that caused him to flee, and that was it, then Chances pretty good he'd have run to King Jehoshaphat and found some asylum there, if it was just fear. But but that's not what he ran for. We see that he sought the peace and solace of the wilderness in order to pour out his great discouragement to God. If he was looking for asylum, he could have gone again to the kingdom of Judah. And number four... Like Paul in Philippians 1.1, Elijah didn't seem to um, have any overwhelming fear of, of death or dying. It didn't seem to be a big fear of his. I mean, he prayed, right, for God to what? Later on, take his life. He didn't seem to be too afraid of dying. And while we see no fear of death or dying, what we do see or sense is an overwhelming sense of discouragement, disappointment, and personal failure as we read verse 4, which says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. He doesn't say, Take my life. I'm so scared. If he was scared of his life being taken, why did he pray for his life to be taken? Right, right. But he felt like a failure. He said, I'm no better than my father. I couldn't do it, Lord. I, I couldn't. I could not turn this woman I could not do it. I've done everything I know how to do, and it wasn't enough. Despite this great victory, nothing's really changed. I have poured out everything I've got. I have emptied the magazine. It's amounted it to nothing. She's still doing what she's always done. God, I have failed. It appears as though Elijah in verse 4 is feeling, look, no matter what I've done, the victory I've achieved, evil's going to win. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, like man, no matter how much I've preached or taught or tried to reach out, I, I look at this and I look, at, and evil is still going to win. I, I, I just don't have enough. Have you ever felt like that as a, as an elder, as a preacher, as a deacon, as a teacher, Bible teacher, as, as, as a spouse? Y'all don't have to shake your heads, yes, especially if your spouse is sitting beside you, but. Have you ever felt like that as one of God's saints in any capacity? No matter how hard I fight, no matter how much I give, no matter how much I do, it's not enough. Evil's going to win. And if that's you, if that's you this morning, and this is the point I want you to get, if that's you this morning, then do not miss how God responded to Elijah. Is God the same God? Is Elijah's God? Right? Malachi 3 6, I the Lord do not change. Hebrews 13 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same God. And he responds the same way. His nature and character has not changed. We're under a different covenant, but his nature has not changed. Do not miss, do not ever forget how God responded to his overwhelmingly discouraged and, and utterly hopeless feeling servant Elijah, verses 5 through 8. As he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him said to him, Arise and eat. Remember, he's just said, Take my life. I'm no better than my fathers. I can't do this, if I may paraphrase. And the angel says, Arise and eat. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time. Notice the patience. The compassion. The mercy. And touched him. He said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Notice God's patience, provision, protection, and even personal appearance to him. You say, wait a minute, I don't see a personal appearance. Understand that when you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is talking about God. It's talking about Christ. It's talking about the Godhead in person. You can go back and read Exodus 3 about the angel of the Lord in the burning bush and how God addressed him as Lord. And he, and he said, I am the Lord. You can see it there, not only in Exodus 3, but Judges 2, that when you see the angel of the Lord, it is, the, it is, the, it is God and I am reminded here of one of the most beautiful promises in the New Testament. To those godly saints who have given all they've got to give and sometimes still feel as though they haven't done enough. Those hardworking, but sometimes surely still overwhelmed and discouraged saints that we see in 1 Peter 5, verses 6-11. through 11. If you want to turn there, that's fine. In fact, I hope you do, but keep your finger here. This promise to us, when when we are overwhelmed, when we are discouraged, when we just just feel as though, man, I I can't can't make this work. And I'm going to read it from the ESV because the English Standard Version actually puts a a little bit more personal touch on this in the way it is translated. Listen to this. You ever been discouraged? Listen to this. You ever given all you got and it wasn't enough? Listen to this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He... May exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Take that personal. I'm not talking to the person beside you, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking, to you. I'm talking to you. Take it personal because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Pay attention to the next two verses, especially as the English Standard Version translates them. It says, after you, personally, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, that's personal. That's as personal as it gets. Will Himself restore? You need restoration some days? Hmm. Confirm? Strengthen? You need God's strength some days when you're just overwhelmed? Strengthen and establish you. Is that true? Black and white. Write in a book. Yeah. That is one of the most all powerful. All encouraging, empowering text in the New Testament, as far as I'm concerned. That's exactly what we catch a glimpse of of God doing for his frustrated and discouraged Old Testament servant, Elijah. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 9, as we move on here in 1 Kings 19. There he went into a cave, spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing? You ever said that to your kids? Ever have your kids do something that's just they know better, it's just a dumb thing, right? And and they know better and you know better and you know that they know better. Say, so, What are you doing? Right? God says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And 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 I, I don't know as I can put the right compassion into it, I'm sure I can't as God did, but I picture in my mind God saying it just that, what are you doing here, Elijah? You ever feel like some days God might say, What are you doing? You know better. You know I love you. You know that I'm in control. What are you doing? What are you doing? Just as a quick aside here, There are several obvious scriptural similarities between Moses and Elijah. Not only did they stand together, this is just a brief aside, real quick. Not only did they stand together on the Mount of Transfiguration, but did you notice some of the other parallels? For example, God revealed himself to both Moses and Elijah through fire. Right? That's one of them. Second one. This phrase, 40 days and 40 nights, is tied to both men, Moses and Elijah. Not only that, but we would note that both Moses in Exodus 32:32 and Elijah here in 1 Kings 19:4 both pray for God to take their life. You want to talk about two great servants of God, Moses and Elijah, on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's as high and good as it gets. Both of those men got so discouraged, prayed for God to take their life. I realize, Moses, you might not say, well, that's not really discouragement, that context. Think about it. And and at the very least, he prayed for that. So it's not too surprising that we see Elijah headed to that same mountain and region from where God had earlier spoken to Moses. And this is where God speaks to Elijah as well. Brethren, for all of Elijah's personal frustration, disappointment, and being overwhelmed, his sense of personal failure, please notice that there is absolutely nothing from God but love, compassion, and mercy for this man who feels as though he's failed God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. I'm reminded here of one of my favorite sections of the entire New Testament all of those selfless servants of God who give everything they got and yet sometimes they feel so beaten and discouraged like maybe they personally failed God and and I think of that text in in Romans chapter 7 where Paul said I want the good things I want to do I can't seem to get done and 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 the bad things that Noah had not do, sometimes I, I do them. And he says, he says there in verse twenty-four, 24, oh, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body Paul was right at his wit's end. He knew the right thing to do. And, and he tried so hard, but sometimes he just failed. He utterly failed to, to do what he knew he should do. And, and, and Paul struggled with that the same way you and I do when we talk about sin. You know, if none of you struggle with sin, I need to talk to you later because you should be up here. okay? But, but Paul did, and we all do, and we all know that we all do. But he says, "O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And don't read that the way it's written insofar as breaking it up in chapter and verses. Don't make chapter 8 and verse 1 of Romans different from chapter 7 and what he's just said. Because he asks the question, "O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he tells us in Romans 8.1, brethren, and I'm going to come down off this step. Romans 8.1 is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible when you are overwhelmed and discouraged. There is now whenever now is now is right now therefore no condemnation none zip zilch nada zero zip none for those who are in christ jesus for those who live according to the spirit for those who are living as the Scripture tells them to live, to the absolute best of their ability, even when they struggle, even when they, they do something, and they're trying with everything they got to do the right thing, but they get overwhelmed, they get discouraged, they fail, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an awesome thing? That's why we come together on Sundays to celebrate what we do around that table. There is no condemnation. And God is trying to get that across to Elijah in this context. Elijah. You can't do this. Verse 10. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Sometimes it is so easy to feel all alone as a servant of the living God. Some of you younger folks, you may be the only Christian in your school. Some of you folks that are out of school, you may be the only Christian in your workplace. Chances are you are, unless you're really super blessed. And you, and you may feel all alone. And, and sometimes in some of our, our smaller congregations in New England, it's, it's easy to feel like you're all alone. Man, I, is, I'm the only one left. This, the, you know, it, it, It's so small. What I am here to tell you today is you are not alone. The body of Christ is one, is that right? There's one Lord, one faith, one there's one body, right? Brethren all over this world are part of that body. See, this is what Elijah didn't realize in his context. He said, I'm all alone. God's going to tell him later, no, you ain't. You know better than that, Elijah. We need to know better than that, too. We're not all alone. I have a question for you to consider, but before I do, I want you to see what God does in verses 11 through 15. Verse 10 Elijah says, here's my problem. God says says in verse 9, what are you doing here? Verse 10, Elijah says, this is my problem. Then God does something interesting. He says, verse 11, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, a great and strong wind tore into the mountains, broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face, in his mantle went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Haven't we heard that before? Is there an echo in here? <laughs> what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats the same answer, in effect... In verse 14, he says the same thing. Now, now here's my question. God asks the question, what are you doing here? Elijah responds. God gets through this big fireworks display. Then he asks the same question. Elijah gives the same response. And God says what he does in the next few verses. Why didn't God do that the first time? Why the fireworks display? Really, think about that. Same question in Verse 10. I mean same question in in verse 9 as we have at the end of verse 13. Same answer in verse 10 as we have in verse 14. Why didn't God just simply come out and answer him? Now, we don't know for sure because the scripture doesn't say, but I want you to at least consider a couple of possibilities, and there may be others. Number one. Maybe like God did with his faithful but still hurting and overwhelmed servant Job, in Job 38 through 41, he's just letting him know, I'm still God. That's a possibility. Scripture, again, doesn't say, and, I, and I, but I just want you to think about possibilities, because it doesn't. Or as Brother Kaufman puts it, it appears that another instruction to be derived from the contrast of the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, versus the still small voice, is that many of the problems related to God's dealings with his rebellious human children cannot be resolved quickly. Elijah demanded an immediate solution to the problem of idolatry in 1 Kings 18.21 when he said, How long will you limp between two opinions? Elijah was looking for a boom. He demanded of the people much the same prompt decision as did Joshua when he said in Joshua 24, 15, Choose this day whom you will serve. Boom! Quick! But neither Joshua nor Elijah could force the issue to a conclusion in one day. Jezebel still wasn't on board, right? Or even in one generation. Listen to this last line from Brother Kaufman. The nearly infinite patience with man's sin is a mark of God's love for his creation. Isn't that right? As we all look back on our lives, aren't we glad that God's given us one more day to try to get a little better and a little closer to perfection than we did yesterday? God's patience is incredible. And not all the problems are going to be solved overnight in this world. They're not. Elijah found that out. It wasn't in the, in the big boom and the bang and the, everything's all done with. While the earthquake and the tempest and the fire and the flood and the slaughter, they all had their place in God's overall plan, right? We see that with Elijah. They all had their place. But it wasn't those things. It wasn't those things that would just simply take care of everything overnight. It wouldn't be those things that would turn people's hearts back to God forever. You know what it would be instead that would turn people to God forever and hold people? The still, small voice of a little baby boy born in Bethlehem who would not squelch a smoldering wick, who taught with love and mercy and compassion. It would be that still, small voice of the Christ. And I'm not being irreverent or to demean it, But God used a humble, faithful, His very own Son. And there's places that Jesus was kicked out of, right? He healed the man, and they said, We don't want you here anymore. And He said, Okay. He left. It would be that humble, still small voice. Isn't it Jesus that holds us to God? Now, now God could could pick Mount Washington up, and, and He could bring the Rockies over here like that. Is that true? And he could cause the Atlantic to go as far as Oklahoma, so we'd finally have some ocean in Oklahoma, right? And that'd be impressive. But that, that's, it's not the earthquake and the fire. and You know what it is? It's that still, small voice of the Christ. Who do you say that I am? That's what holds us to God. And Elijah needed to understand that everything is not solved overnight. We need to understand, as we seek to evangelize, we need to do the best we can. Amen? But we're not going to convert the entire town of Tilton in one day. But that's no reason to quit. And Elijah was ready to quit. And that is one of the greatest lessons out of this. I believe the point that God is trying to get across to Elijah here and to us is that Elijah just needed to continue to do the little quiet things that God told him to do and that God would take care of the overall, the big stuff, the fireworks, Brethren, you and I need to continue to do the quiet little things we have been told to do. We need to talk to people about Jesus every day. That's what we've been told to do, right? But in those days when we fail and we run up against somebody hard-hearted and they're not going to change, we need to leave that to God and keep on doing what God told us to do. There's still work to do. There's other people to talk to about Jesus. And just trust and believe the big things up to him who is able to tear apart mountains, who is able to shake them into rubble, and who is able to send fire from heaven when he feels the need to do so. We just need to carry on with what he told us to do. The mission of every mist-like, momentary, millisecond in the overall scheme of things, earthly life of God's humble servants, the mission of every one of them is simply to do this, to live our entire lives... This brief snapshot of time that we have here. Living for God and doing the little things he told us to do. Leave the rest up to God. Is the church going to last until the Lord comes to take us home? You know what? If this earth spins another 20,000 years, you probably ain't going to be here for the majority of that. Neither am I. (laughs) But our job today, talk about the people we know today. Talk to the people about Jesus and about this hope we have. And leave the rest up to God. Did God finally deal with Jezebel and Ahab? Elijah didn't have to deal with Jezebel. God took really good care of that. 1 Kings 21, 19 through 22. 1 Kings 22:37 37 through 38. And 2 Kings 9, 32 through 37. God took really good care of Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah, we know as we continue on here in verses 15 through 20, and I'm not going to read them, But we see that that God was just telling Elijah, hey, I I still got work for you to do. In verses 15 and 16 of 1 Kings 19, it is shown that God still has work for Elijah to do, and Elijah needs to get up and go do it. Okay, Elijah, and I'm going to be very blunt, there is a clarion call here for us. There is no time, brethren, hear me loud and clear, there is no time for you and I to sit around licking our wounds. There is no time for you and I to sit around and make ourselves the guest of honor at our own pity party. That's what Elijah was doing. And God said, what are you doing? I still got things for you to do. When somebody does not respond positively that we try to teach, Rather than sit here for the next six months or each, say, I'm not going to teach anybody else because you know, that didn't work and I just, I've had it. No, 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 no. How much time do I get to say no? God says, I still got work for you to do. There's other people you need to reach. Don't, don't sit there and throw yourself a pity party. Don't go hide in a cave. What, what are you doing? Go tell them about Jesus. There's more people. The Bible tells us See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. As we move on here to verse 17, it shows us that God's work and plan would continue long after Elijah was gone, because God was far bigger than anything Elijah would or would not accomplish during his life. Brethren, God's bigger than anything you and I are going to do during our life, okay? Right? We still work for God and we give him our best, but you know what? God's got the overall thing in hand. We just need to go and be obedient. Verse 18 reinforces the fact that no matter how alone we might feel in our momentary earthly lives in service to God, the bigger picture is that's just not true. That's why every chance, that's why I love these lectureships, that's why every chance you get, if you get a chance to go to a youth, to a faithful congregation, because unfortunately some brethren today are, are not sticking to scriptures the way they ought to, but if you have the opportunity to attend a ladies' day, or a youth rally, or polishing the pulpit, or, or any of those things that you can be part of, go! If, if, if God has blessed you that you are able to take the time and you have the money to go, go! You know why? Because you're not alone, and you sometimes need a group of maybe 1,200 or 1,400 other people to show you, I'm not alone in my little corner of the world up there in Tilton, New Hampshire, or, or wherever, you Australia, okay? I'm not picking on Tilton. But you need to know you're part of something far bigger, and you need to experience that. I'll tell you what, we go to Affirming the Faith, which is a, a get-together in Oklahoma City once a year. They didn't have it last year because of COVID. Man, did I miss that. You get 1,200 saints singing in the same building. Let me tell you what, the house is rocking. You want to talk about encouraging? When you've got 1,200 saints and song leaders and preachers and all these people who can really sing, and they're singing their hearts out to God, you cannot talk to the person next to you. You shouldn't anyway, but you can't talk to the person next to you because you can't hear them. That's awesome. You need that, especially as part of a small congregation. God said to him, you're not alone. So it's at that point, verses 19 through 21, having gotten the message that Elijah gets up, goes back to work, and continues to fill Fulfill his earthly life's mission, his heavenly Lord's service. Again, verses 19 through 21. So, as I conclude this morning's lesson, I want you to take this personal. (laughs) Let me say, a preacher was talking right to me personally. Yep, that's right, I am. Right now, I'm talking to you personally. Yep, count on it. What are you personally Doing here in Tilton, New Hampshire? What are you personally doing here in the Lord's service this morning? Are you one that's feeling overwhelmed? You're feeling frustrated, discouraged, you're feeling you're feeling defeated? You, you feel like maybe you failed because you didn't get the instant result that you really, really, really were hoping to have the last time you reached out for the Lord and his cause. That may be you this morning. We've, most of us have been there. <laughs> that may be you. If so, then it is time for you to understand, just like Elijah had to understand, that all God expects you to do, all God expects you to do, no matter the overall outcome, is to continue to do what he told you to do to the best of your ability and let God take care of the results. Amen? Leave the eternal outcome up to him who is able. We have got to see the bigger picture and just continue to serve the Lord every day with all we've got, each one of us, no matter what. What are you doing here?